cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. I'm Alan Watt, just coming to the Matrix on the 8th of January 2009. For newcomers, look into the website cuttingthroughthematrix.com and you'll find hundreds of hours of talks I've given over the years that go into the big, big picture, trying to tie history together with the present and showing you where it's all tied together and going forward in a directed plan, how it's organized something the average person doesn't even realize that that there are big, powerful foundations and organizations working together to bring in a particular type of future. And we're all kept entertained and in confusion when all of this is happening. Also look into alanwattsentinel.eu and you can download written transcripts of these talks and they're written in the various languages of Europe. Last night I talked about the effects of what I call the system. The system being an economic system primarily, which gives rise to a hierarchy, which dominates it. And really, I think even Marx said the same thing, that every system that's ever existed, as far as we know and the history we're given, has been based on economics. Economics takes priority over everything and everyone underneath it. And it's always ruled by big potentates, either kings or queens. Today we have governments, some we have monarchies and governments combined, uh, such as the British uh, system. And nothing really has changed. The trick is, though, of course, is getting the public, whom they view as a big herd of animals at the bottom, to go along with this agenda. And the way they do it is by never having them know or understand what's really ever going on or where they're going to end up. They like us to think we know where we're going to end up. That's why people vote. They vote for promises. Promises always work with most people. And even though politics today is a farce because most people can get into office and then renege on their promises and say there's not enough money in the kitty. That happens very commonly today. And that's good enough for the people. They go, oh, shucks, and, and sit back waiting for the next thing to happen. But nothing has happened at all. As I say, even to do with the economic system we're in today and all the tragedy it's caused down through the ages to people as it rampaged ahead, building up empires, moving its headquarters from empires from place to place as it grew in prosperity and power. You can watch it hop down from, the, from ancient times, from the Middle East, and eventually into Rome. And from Rome, it went on to other places and set up its capitals down through the ages. Money, 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 power and trade all combined together. And even previous to Rome, we find the Minoans. The Minoans lived 
around the Aegean Sea, we find that they lived a very high lifestyle. They've actually chipped away some of the old volcanic rock that covered much of their territory and some of the islands that are left. And we find in places like Terra, for instance, they lived an incredible start lifestyle. These people lived on an island or a big island at the time. The middle went down. That was a volcano. It left the periphery islands that they've been excavated today. And they had hot and cold running water. They lived in a beautiful climate. They had frescoes painted in every room, every, and even the walkways, the little shopping markets were all painted, hand-painted and fantastic art. Thousands of years ago. Very high lifestyle. Back with more after these messages. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. Discussing how an elite have existed in all ages who lived at the, the top of even today's society, some of them. Some people today across the planet don't have hot and cold running water. They live in squalor and poverty. But we find that these people who ran the ancient trade routes and the shipping and the commerce and the money lending and all that went with it in the Minoan Islands lived a life of incredible luxury, even by today's standards, in a beautiful climate, as I say, very picturesque. They even had found lists of inventories of their boats and ships and all their trade routes and the incredible wealth they had amassed at that time. And even they were based on a similar techniques, uh, a technique that the Phoenicians eventually used. And that was they made towns, like slave towns, that made their pottery, that made the artifacts they sell elsewhere. They also used money and introduced money into peoples who never used it before. Once it was accepted, they loaned it out and then created debt. And then people found themselves literally in slavery as a, a form of factory towns across the Mediterranean. And with money comes rise to a leisure class. A leisure class then that can be devoted, at least some of them, to the intellectual pursuits, as they call them. They used to call them the philosophies. In fact, the word school comes from a Greek word which meant leisure. Only the leisure class could go. And school in ancient times, even in ancient Greece, was not mandatory. But those particular ones, the professors you might call them, the philosophers who taught, could pick up budding students. Some of them were very secretive. We know for a fact that if you go into the writings of Plato and Socrates, etc., we find that precursors of them had basically been burned out for trying to start revolutions. They'd all studied in Egypt. Egypt almost exported revolutions by the disciples that they sent out into the world. We find this with Pythagoras, for instance, who had set up, I think, in Crotona, because at that time, what was Italy was actually a province of Greece. And he, his school was burned down for, again, fomenting revolution amongst the youth for rebellion. 
and revolution. We find later on the same thing happened to Socrates. Most of the writing on Socrates comes from one of his students, who was Plato. So Plato himself had scampered off during that purge to escape being implicated. He came back many years later to teach his own school, uh, but we find that that uh, Socrates was charged with corrupting the youth. What they meant by that was he was recruiting them along the, 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 even the Pythagorean system where the, the brightest students were taught to basically undermine the present culture system and power authority and have a revolution to take it over. There was different methods, direct methods of physical warfare, but they preferred the slow we call it today the Fabian technique. He also trained female students in intellectual pursuits that made them very appealing as wives to many much of the nobility, and he'd arrange marriages for them, and they hoped to subvert the culture that way as well. These movements, as I say, come down through the ages under many guises, and really when you look at them, they're all much the same. You know that Pythagoras had a few years of silence for his students. It was like a monastery almost, where they couldn't speak. They listened, they watched, they obeyed. And we find the later monks of the Catholic Church, many of the monasteries had their vows of silence too, based on the same kind of system. And they had their own special things to do within the church, their own special area. And out of that, we know that it was copied or not, came other movements, the Jesuits, for instance. Something that's never been explained to the public because the founder of the Jesuits, Loyola, Ignatius Loyola, was himself a member of the Alambratos of Spain, and that was the Illuminati of Spain. They were left over a Spanish branch of the Knights Templars. He initially was caught by guards of the Catholic Church that drawn armies at that time and imprisoned and was given an opportunity to see, see the Pope. That in itself was highly unusual. And when he came out, he was the first black Pope, as they call it. He was authorized. What happened, we'll never know, between the Pope and himself. And then since then, many orders have been founded that have copied the techniques of the Jesuit system. The Jesuit system is probably the most advanced system in understanding psychology of individuals and the mass of its period. And it did not simply come out during the lifetime of its founder. Its founder obviously was taught this kind of science, this kind of science from the organizations that he'd been brought up in himself. Ancient wisdom. Getting back to last night's show to talking about how the system comes down through the ages and conquers people, gets war started, because war is intended to change the cultures on both sides. Then you have a treaty and often an amalgamation. In fact, that's why, that's the reason given officially for the setting up of the process and bureaucracy that amalgamated Europe was to prevent more wars. They had to get wars going for that to happen. We know that Hitler wanted a united Europe. We know 
from this personal secretary of Winston Churchill that he wanted a united Europe. We know that at the end of World War II uh, that the United States made conditions on the land lease program that some of this money would go towards the unification of Europe. We also know that towards the end of the 1990s, for the first time once it was complete and up and running, and that the European Parliament was there, it was disclosed in the newspapers how long they'd been at this program through deception. They were told, they said that the public must never know the truth until this project was completed. We are run by stealth. Most people never really know the real reasons behind it or where it's going. And nothing has changed because the world is the whole target and the techniques are the same as have been used by big, heavily funded secret societies down through the ages. And through stealth and deception, even those who are called the willing fools, the hardened types of left-wing and right-wing who are steeped in their own dogma and doctrine, never figure out where it's really, really going. The Soviet system was set up by the West. There is no doubt on that. There's too much documentation on it. We find Professor Sutton, Anthony Sutton of Harvard, wrote a series of books on who financed Hitler and who financed the Bolsheviks, Russia. And we find the same big banks and big foundations in the Western countries set them up, both of them, which became big problems, we think, we thought at the time, to the average person who lived in every other country, never suspecting that this is all part of the dialectic technique to get people battling on two sides, at least two sides. You must create utter believers. The system always has enemies. An enemy is someone who won't give in to the system and bend the knee and be a slave. I mentioned before how even in ancient times, as the economic system rolled ahead with power and weaponry, and yes, there were armaments factories even thousands of years ago that churned out all their chariots and weapons and armor and so on for all the big armies and they were going to conquer people and often move them off the land if they thought they couldn't be assimilated or forced to work for them. They'd literally move whole populations to other lands. Deculturalization and genocide is nothing new. And if every peoples of the world were to go through their history following the economic system, you should, you'd find there should be a, 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 basically a Holocaust museum for every people because everyone's had their turn at it. And some are still getting their turn at it. Last night I mentioned the fact that those who won't succumb and join and, and work for this system and produce and consume are called a problem. All through the records of the British Home Office, you'll find them in the histories and the documentation and the writings of the, the big wigs who served 
as colonial officers for Britain and the British Empire, you'll find them using the word problem. The Palestinian problem, that's still there today, that's called the Palestinian problem. They won't cave in. We've had the Iraqi problem, the Iran problem, Iran. We had the Irish problem. We had the Highlander or the Scottish problem. You had the African problem. And what happens to those people who won't adapt into the system in Darwinian's own language? What happens to them? They're pretty well destroyed or killed off by disease and poverty. It's adapt or die, according to Darwin. And we'll be back with more of this after this break. of the 
drawings. They also chose, interestingly enough, a system to base theirs on, and that was that of ancient Rome. Ancient Rome had a system which was run primarily by a few nobles and thousands of slaves. It was just like Greece. Greece collapsed to an extent at the end because it had more, more slaves running around in the cities working than people who owned them. And Rome became pretty well the same. That's why the U.S. also adopted the Senate. The Senate is a word that comes from Egypt, ancient Egypt, and it was their name for a game that could be the precursor of the chessboard. And we know that Masons love the tesserated floor of the, the lodge, which is the chessboard. And so our plan was hatched a long time ago to bring in a world system. And Britain led that system, there's no doubt whatsoever, for an awful long time. It built up an empire. It's never been explained to the public why one tiny little island could amass such wealth in the hands of a few and a, a massive navy running the seas and became the moneylender for the world in his day from the banks of London. Never been explained to the public. And we know too from the writings of people like Rudyard Kipling, who himself again was another Freemason, wrote a poem about the white man's burden. And he came over and read it in the U.S. Senate, and he said, we pass the torch on to you. Britain was exhausted. They couldn't tax the people anymore at that time. They had massive war debts after hundreds of years of wars. And the idea was the U.S. would take over and finance it and become the policeman of the world and finish off the job of unification. And now the United States itself is going under in debt, as I said it would be, because I didn't guess this myself. I read the writings of Arnold Toynbee and others who predicted the U.S. would be heavily involved in wards around the year 2000 and on. They'd begin to falter, they'd rally a bit, seem to be winning, then fall, mainly due to economic reasons at home. We find Kissinger giving out talks today about how the U.S. will have to sit back a little bit and allow other powers to come to the fore and to share this power that America will not be an elite anymore. We see a man put in by his controllers to take over and push this final part of the agenda of which is total globalization for America itself. I always said if America has pushed and made war on the rest of the world to bring in a new world order when they're finishing it off they'll pull the rug at home and, and the U.S. will be submerged into the very system which it helped create and I'll continue on this theme after the following break You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
cutting to the matrix. Trying to cram a lot into an hour as usual. There's not a lot of time in an hour to go into things in great detail. But it's essential that people grasp the fact that we're not simply evolving willy-nilly by happenstance and from crisis after crisis that just come out of nowhere. We're living to a plan, including the economic plan that was set up by the Bretton Woods Agreement, Part 1, and now we're going to Part 2, because the founder himself, who was a member of the Fabian Society, those big eugenicists that loved socialism, in fact, they were behind socialism, John Maynard Keynes said that they'd have to do a Part 2, and he probably wouldn't see it in his lifetime, the outcome, but they wanted to bring in a world of service to the world state, a world state. Where did he get that from? Well, we know that Cecil Rhodes and the Cecil Rhodes Foundation that was given royal assent to exist had two missions to accomplish primarily. One was to take over the world's resources by all and every means possible. And they fomented wars and blamed their enemies for starting the wars, and they bring in British troops to deal with them. So the empire got involved and took over countries that way. And it took over the gold and the diamond mines and the mineral content of a good part of Africa and elsewhere. And then Cecil Rhodes, his foundation, massive, massively wealthy, evolved into the Royal Institute of International Affairs, without, again, a royal charter to exist on behalf of the British elite to further this whole plan and use their doctrine in other ways, not just necessarily warfare. We do find that the Royal Institute of International Affairs and its American branch, the Council on Foreign Relations, were all for Vietnam, and then all their members were against Vietnam later on, but they wanted that war to happen. Why? Why was that? The same reason they were all for the creation of the Soviet Union. That's why. The Soviet Union accomplished many tasks out of dozens of small countries with different languages, different cultural morals and so on, religions. You were left in a very short time with a standardized, bureaucratic, governmental, educational system. It could have taken 150 years, 200 years of straight warfare to achieve that any other way. The same thing was true for Vietnam. Vietnam had hundreds of tribes fighting each other and had been forever, all with their own ideas of how things should be. And the fastest way to unite them was to create one party and then get a foreign people, as the most foreign the better, the white man, to go in and invade him. And that made the Communist Party the only opposition and they were united by force through massive warfare. Warfare accomplishes many things. The man carrying the gun is the last one to realize what he's really there for, or what's to come out of it, just like the troops of today. It's very Machiavellian. And government is always Machiavellian. They're never honest to the public. Every report that comes out of a politician's mouth is generally a handout to the press written by the scriptwriters, everything has its public relations department, even your local police board 
the public relations department. Everything is PR today, perception, altered perception. Going back to the old mysteries of ancient times, we find the Romans, whenever they invaded a country, a nation, even like Britain, they would always call them barbarians, and they were off to civilize the barbarians. And they had eugenics in action back then too, with the same racist comments and slurs that the dominant ones always have over those they are robbing from and subduing. That's been used down through the ages. The churches have done it too. In fact, churches have been an essential arm of government down through the ages. Often the churches have nothing to do with the founder, or at least the one they supposedly take the religion after. Certainly not by their dogma or their actions. So eugenics is part of a commercialized economic system that runs on efficiency. And we know that Malthus, Thomas Malthus, and many others who wrote on behalf of the British government, because he was an economist for the big, big, the big systems, the East Indian Company and the other companies, international companies that were owned by the Crown Corporations of England, they knew that certain types, along with people like other economists like John Stuart Mill and his son of the same name, they had already written up the list of peoples who had to be basically extirpated, exterminated. And they said that those who wouldn't join them, the economic system, or who were unfit, would have to die off because they'd be a burden on society. And that has been used over and over again because we have eugenics completely intertwined with an economic system. Completely intertwined. We have people like Lord Bertrand Russell who called those who couldn't work or who had no work or who had work that was now obsolete, trades which are gone, etc. He called them useless eaters. And he said, the world that's coming in cannot tolerate useless eaters. We find in the writings and the bills put out by Kissinger to do with the enemy of the state in the 70s, they declared that the greatest threat to the state was overpopulation. What he really meant was population of the wrong kinds, which is standard eugenics. And out of that came a list, and he wrote up the list of the countries that would be too overpopulated. And those are the countries today where you have wars going on. He said they'd have to really have this in effect and working, at least underway by the year 2000. Well, we've seen it. We've seen AIDS, HIV, flood across Africa that was on his list. And the other countries, too, that were on his list. The other ones are at war or having wars put upon them. We are here, according to those who rule the system, to stir up the economy. When I was looking through the, the think tanks that work for the military, or at least advise the military, they all said that the next system coming in must continue to use the present economy. So the economy, once again, is number one, not human lives, not human happiness or welfare, but the economy must still be used, even though we're going under financially. The economy, this, this system of profit, 
and loss would be maintained at all costs. Why is that? Why has the economy never been there to serve the people? Well, for the same reason as governments have never been there to serve the people, it's a front. If you go into the dialectical system of the Cold War, as I say, there's a necessary component called the Sovietized or communist system that they set up in order to create the dialectic thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Remember, synthesis always comes out of it. And we found out that synthesis had already become out of it. It was already working. The amalgamation of the two systems, when Norman Dodds and the Rees Commission did his investigation into the power and influence of the great foundations. That's the book to read. His foundations, their power and influence, get a hold of it. Because there's never been a truer time when that's so true today. They run everything. Everything. They're all, all the fronts in the world, across the world, in the universities. They control the universities. They decide what's taught in the universities. And using this combination of the Sovietized system and the Western so-called democratic system, the blend of the two, they bypass the older generations, that standard Soviet technique, communist technique, and go right for the young, especially those who have been involved in working in governments and bureaucracies and become the CEOs of corporations. And they'll be in marketing, they'll be in culture creation industries and so on. They go straight for them. And that's why the universities across the world have massive funding from all the big foundations with stipulations on what to teach. And every professor who smells the wind and knows what's expected of him will be well taken care of if he promotes this new third way or third wave as it's sometimes called. What is the third wave? It's taken after dropping a stone in a pond and watching the ripple. It's the effect of the third wave that's important if you observe it. They've done stage one. The first stage was the capitalist system. Stage two was a communist system. The third wave is pushing for the entire planet in a planned society, bringing with it eugenics. And it's all out in the open today. There is no conspiracy. You, can, you can't pick up a newspaper article or a magazine or turn on a television set without a panel of experts and as bioethicists who are eugenicists talking about the coming future and what it will entail or other experts coming in saying they are going into the womb to rectify defective genes and children they suspect will have criminal tendencies or a host of other things. It's all over the place. World society, global, global, global. As I say, they put their man in at the end, Mr. Uh, Obama, because he's agreed, and that was his job. That's why they put him in at this time to push forward all of the treaties the United States had not signed, but it helped force upon the rest of the world. 
because the U.S. financed the Kyoto. The U.S. financed every U.N. agenda there is. Now they have to sign it and succumb to it, which really is the complete end of sovereignty for the United States of America. And what will come out of that will be massive tax increases. Never mind the bailouts for the big banking boys. And it's bailout part one, part two is to come. It also means that you'll be heavily taxed for everything. If you understand that the food, for instance, in Europe is about three to four times what you're paying in the United States. We're looking at really, really tough times ahead. Because this is the agenda. And as Kissinger said, the U.S. must learn to sit back and maybe even take a back seat at times. Everything is planned this way. There's not a foundation out there out of the thousands of foundations, which are all fronts, which promote the thousands of non-governmental organizations, there's not one of them goes a different road from the others. They're all politically correct and all the same topics as every other one, like clones of each other. That doesn't happen by accident. That's called massive organization. And some of these foundations have one job and that's to get consensus on the same topics with all the rest there is no democracy involved in this whatsoever the public are generally in complete ignorance of what is running and shaping their future it's not intended that they know the media's job is not to let you know what's going on it's to distract you and entertain you, and download you, and indoctrinate you. When you think of millions of people tuning in to the same TV stations every night, getting the same download, you wonder why they all look the same, talk about the same things, have the same opinions, they've never reasoned anything through for themselves. Remember behind these foundations and the ones who started them up is the eugenics society. It's got many names today, including bioethics. Specialists above us are deciding the fate and the shape, literally, of the humans of the future. Not the, the people. We have no say in it whatsoever. It's taught all through universities. And it has different departments such as I say, neuroscience. It's going into the ethics of what they can do with the brain. Not what, what, what we say they should do with the brain or not do with the brain, but what they're going to do with the brain, the human brain. That won't be mentioned either in any parliament or congress in the planet. It's all bypassed. It's done mainly through universities. There's a book put out by David C. Reardon. The book was in progress, at least I don't know if it's finished yet, but he does have some of his pages up on a site, and it's called The Eugenics Connection, Shapers of Humanity. Good title, Shapers of Humanity. And then he started this in 2006. And in chapter 5, he goes on to, to tell you 
some of the history of the eugenics movement and neo-Malthusianism, as it's called. He says, during the 1930s, this is under the, the title From Promise, Promises to Disillusionment. During the early 1930s, eugenics reached the height of its popularity in pre-World War II America. It was during this period when their political power was greatest that eugenicists and neo-Malthusians became increasingly radical in their demands to eliminate the unfit. This is in America. And I've talked before about the history of it. The Rockefellers were at the top of this movement, funding it all. Demands to eliminate the unfit, whom they called a race of chronic paupers, a poverty gene, a race of parasites and parasitic upon the community. Eugenic weapons to be used in this war between races. I've already talked about how they eliminated many of the Indians. Thousands of them were slaughtered by disease and so on, in terrible conditions. War between races were increasingly coercive and destructive in 1932 at the Third International Congress of Eugenics held in New York City. New York City. Proposals were made to prevent the further dilution of the American gene pool by those who possessed inferior genes through segregation, sterilization, birth control, abortion, and even infanticide. They wanted to kill the children. We have that today now. We have partial birth abortion. See, all of these goals have been reached. All of these goals have been reached and called different things back after this break.
particularly those born to parents of the unfit class. At the same conference, Dr. Russell Roby called for the compulsory sterilization of a minimum of 14 million Americans, whom he defined as possessing subhuman intelligence. Roby's speech is particularly notable in its similarities to the rhetoric of the 1970s population control zealots. It should never change, it's always the same rhetoric. Our population has already attained a greater number than is necessary for the efficient functioning of the race. Now, they mean the system, again, this economic system as a whole. Certainly, our present picture of millions of unemployed in this year, remember, it's 1932, we hear the same hype down through the ages. The worst period of the Great Depression would point to the belief that this suggestion of 40 million forced sterilizations is not an unreasonable one. It would undoubtedly be found, if such research was possible, that a major portion of this vast army of unemployed are social inadequates, and in many cases mental defectives, who might have been spared the misery they are now facing if they had never been born. Now remember, most of those people in the 20s and 30s were kicked off their lands, their farms, by the banks, with the backup of the governments and the henchmen, they kick them off the bailiffs. And here they are all classed as mentally defective. You see, under this system, with this little secret beliefs at the top, if you were not, if you were kicked off your land, then you had to be poor. Otherwise, you have plenty of money. You could have seen your way through it. Those who couldn't see their way through it were therefore inferior. And they wanted them to wipe them all off. And that's coming with all the unemployed that will be here shortly as this system goes down the tubes. Better understand that now. Well, that's it for tonight. So from Hamish and myself in Ontario, Canada, it's good night and may your God or your gods go with you.